Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is the 13th of the 8th. Michael, how have you been? I'm fine, but it's Friday the 13th, Gary. Are you very scared? Are you frightened? No, it's only unlucky for some. You know, I always ask you how you are, but you never ask how I am. I always do, and you never answer. In fact, I, I, I get tired of of asking and then not getting an answer. I say, I'm very well, Gary, and how are you? You go back and listen. I'm sure the listeners will email in in their thousand. You realise, Michael, even if that was true, I could just go back and edit all of that out. Uh, it would show a touch of... Si- I don't know if you call it sociopathy or something. It would show a certain personality trait in your guy, which is not attractive. I have been having a fantastic day, Michael. A a fractious day. Oh, Kalu Kalei. Kalu Kalei, my beamish boy. I just, I can't escape the feeling, Michael, that despite all this talk of climate change and the apocalypse and all of that, that nature is healing. Oh, right, yes. Because with... About a month to go until the 20th anniversary of September the 11th, the Taliban look like they're about to take over Afghanistan. And we also see Gaddafi's son arise as a potential to take over Libya. The Gaddafi son story is, I have to admit, kind of fantastic. I'll put a link to a proper examination of this in the bottom of the podcast. But the general gist of it is that after Gaddafi was, uh, after the, the, I don't know what you would call it, a coup uprising or whatever, Gaddafi's son was, uh, was taken, was held hostage by uh, Islamic militants. And they held him there for years until they had a sudden realisation that the whole getting rid of Gaddafi thing had ended terribly. Yeah, Libya was now just a shit show. And they went back to him and they went, you know, we think Libya needs a strong hand and we would like you to run for president of Libya with our backing. <laughs> it's it's brilliant. It's like it's 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 a version of the county of Mon- the county of Monte Cristo for for the modern day. He's in the Chateau d'If, well, a Libyan version of Chateau d'If, and then they they decide, you know what, you are you're you're actually a treasure. We haven't realised we've. We've had the place has turned into an absolute shit show, and they're looking back and saying, "You know, the day Mumar Mumar was a he was a bit of a character. I'm not saying he was a he, he didn't have his faults or his failings, but you look around today, you think Mumar wouldn't have let that go on. You, the buses ran on time and the streets were clean. I wonder what was there, like what was the peak post Gaddafi moment that made them go. You know what? We have made a mistake. We backed the wrong horse here. No, I want I I. I Imagine the scene where they're sitting around, and maybe they're having a you know their annual Islamic militant te- uh, meeting. You know what's on the agenda? Maybe they're just having dinner. And Fred sits up and says, "Lads, I've been thinking. Now I know this is going to sound a bit, but hear me out. You know there's an election coming up. Well, you know we were saying that the problem with running somebody for the election is you'll want somebody with strong name recognition <laughs> because you know otherwise." You're at nothing. And a name that makes them think of a better time. Before the warlords. Yeah, a good time. A time of peace and security, stability. When Libya was respected around the world. You know, and it struck me. We actually have access to somebody with that kind of name recognition. You know, a bit of a blank look on the faces. Bit of a silence. Where we've got young Gaddafi. There's a certain amount of ah, and then there's a, you know what? He may be right. I think I would like to have been at that meeting. Now, there is part of me, Gary, which just doesn't believe this story is true, but it does have the hallmarks of actually being the case. But I think it's absolutely fantastic. I wonder if they listened, you know, when they decided this, if they listened to that song Gaddafi wrote about uh, Condoleezza Rice. (laughs) 
poet, horseman, general, planner, politician, and song, a songwriter up there with Stephen Sondheim. So for those who aren't aware of this, Colonel Gaddafi had a borderline stalkerish fixation on Condoleezza Rice. Do you know what her song, what the song was called? No. Black Flower in the White House. <laughs> Very poetic. But anyway, we're not talking about Muammar Gaddafi, are we? We're talking about another return, another golden oldie, which, as you say, is the, 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 the Taliban in Afghanistan. You're saying they're about, or they're, they may be taking Afghanistan. I think, no, Gary, they're taking Afghanistan. I, I saw reports, American reports, very astute you know, senior people, Michael, saying that at the worst, the Taliban could take Kabul in a month to three months and going to the end of that scale. The Taliban themselves were saying, we could take all of Afghanistan in two weeks if we wanted to. And people laughed at that. They thought that was ridiculous. Well, I think, Michael, now we've got to say, you've got to give it to the Taliban. You've got to get... Yeah, there are all these, you know, these talking heads that appear on things like CNN and NBC. And you're told by the, the scroll underneath that they are a security analyst, um, an expert from the Pentagon. Oh, well, it'll be... It's hard to know. And you're talking about... You're talking it's probably 60 to 90 days before... And then the Russians... There was there was a guy in Russia, wasn't there? He said, well, we can do it in two weeks. And they all just looked and said, it is to laugh. Don't be silly. And yet here... They have come. They've come like that... Is that this poem by, by Byron? They've come like wolves from the mountains. And they have swept from the north to the south. And... But... The best, well, oh God, I mean, if you were there, it's not a bit funny. Obviously, all of the rest of civic life in Afghanistan has just collapsed in front of them. There is no opposition. People seem to be making the choice. Once the Americans made it clear they were actually going, there was a sense that there is no balancing polarity left in Afghanistan. So anybody that decided to look like they were opposed to the return of the Taliban was going to find themselves on the wrong end of a beheading. So everything has just collapsed in front of them. But, Gary, there have been elements of this withdrawal. Had they occurred under Donald Trump, I think that he would have been crucified under the front the front pages of the New York Times. The embassy. We, we, we are... T- <laughs> I think this is brilliant. This is what the embassy is pretty well... Or the, and not Maybe not now. It may have been rectified by now. But yesterday, the embassy was effectively unguarded. They'd taken all the soldiers away, really. They And they hadn't noticed that they now had the embassy there and the, and the Taliban were coming. So they were engaging, Gary, in negotiations with the Taliban that the Taliban would say that they wouldn't do any bad things or nasty things to the embassy. And I, we should remember that another... Uh, an American president back in the 70s who was unfortunate enough to have an embassy taken hostage by an Islamic, a radical Islamic insurgency, uh, which, of course, in Tehran. And that basically scuppered his chances of getting re-elected. So the prospect of Taliban arriving in and taking over the American embassy is not something which they really were enjoying. However, what I loved, Kerry, was the press sec. Did you see this? Yeah, I they, they were talking about why the Taliban should basically be gentle with the embassy and respect the sovereign territory of the embassy and not, for instance, Michael, line everyone up against a wall and shoot them in the back of the head. Pressek said in this context, you know, that, you know we're, we're talking to them, you know, we're, we're, we're engaging. Quote, the Taliban has to make an assessment 
about what they want their role to be in the international community. Now, to get to the end of that sentence and look as serious as this lady did, I say that that is a remarkable achievement. The Taliban is going to make an assessment about what role they want to be in the international community when it is the existential desire of the Taliban to destroy the international community insofar as the international community does not conform to their their religious ideological worldview. Put this in scale, if you look back towards the start of the year, the Taliban controlled certain areas of Afghanistan and there were a lot of contested areas, but there was a solid core of government uh, controlled areas. If you look at it now, on paper the Taliban controlled about two thirds of the country, maybe up to, maybe above that. It could be as high as 80% shortly. But when you actually look at it on a map, when you colour code it, Michael, the government sections are basically in the process of just being swallowed up, being surrounded on all sides. It is not going to be a pleasant situation. And so to say, talk about their place in the international community, I think is to accept that there is only one way this is going to end. And it's going to end pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's going to end with the, the sovereign state of Afghanistan being ruled by the Taliban. Now, while there was, sorry, there was, I was saying that there was, I thought, rich comedy in the idea that you're going to negotiate the Taliban on the basis that, you know, they want to calm down now because you don't want to be perceived as being the, the outliers or the bad boys of the international community. God, no. There was another tweet today I, I saw, which I thought was one of the saddest things I've seen in a long time on Twitter. If anyone wants to help to buy plane tickets for Afghans with visas trying to leave the country, contact at any no one left behind or it's anyone left behind. There are hundreds, in fact, thousands of people who have worked with for the American and the Afghan government who have visas, who've been given visas. I suspect there are lots of who've also done so haven't got visas. And they can't get out. They don't have the money for the plane tickets. Did you see Biden talking about this a day or two ago? So Biden said that um, he had no regrets about the U.S. withdrawal. And that what had to happen now is the Afghans need to fight for themselves. And they need to come together and fight for their nation. And um, yeah, they're going to get slaughtered. Because it turns out that the Taliban, despite having far less people on paper, are actually really good at this. Like, really good. Like, shockingly good. I, I don't want to be dismissive of the fighting qualities of the Taliban or to disrespect them in any way. And if they're listening, you know, kudos. But from, again, just reading reports, because you know, I, I haven't been in Afghanistan for quite some time, as you can imagine these days, with COVID, there's a the very strong sense that once the Americans announced that they were leaving and people believed them, confidence in anything just disappeared. Everything just collapsed. There was no sense of belief that anybody was going to be in a position to oppose the Taliban and that became this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Nobody wanted to be to be part of an opposition which was doomed to failure because to be associated with that opposition would be to doom you personally and your family and probably your friends. And so the, the, the structure of this, the, the, the nation has fallen apart. But it's a pretty horrendous idea. That you, one can imagine that there, because we had reports from, that there were thousands of people fleeing from the north in front of the Taliban as the Taliban came towards uh, places like Herat and Kandahar, now Kabul, that they were fleeing them because they knew that uh, their prospects under Taliban will be very, very poor prospects indeed. Well, they're now sitting there hoping and praying that somebody's going to give them a ticket to get on an airplane to get out of there. And right now, it's and I'm 
the last thing I heard was I think that actually the commercial flights which had had been still going have stopped. Afghanistan has always been an interesting case. I mean, there's historically its designation as the graveyard of empires. There's a quote from Clausewitz, um, the, the military theorist, the famous military theorist, Russian, that war is the continuation of policy by other means. And the the standard read of that is that it is a normalization of violence, that war is a, merely another policy choice that can be picked at will. But I think when you actually read Clausewitz's work, what he's actually saying is that war is a policy. It should have a point, and that point should be achievable. And if it's not achievable, you shouldn't go to war. And Afghanistan always struck me as when they got it, when America went in, and it was more than a lot of them wanted. They were never willing to commit to what they would have needed to do to break the Taliban. Because to break the Taliban, they would have had to kill quite a lot of people. Probably more people than it's possible for an army in a democracy. Human intelligence. So you would have shot a lot of people who'd done absolutely nothing wrong. And you would have shot thousands to tens of thousands of them in order to break the Taliban. And they were never going to do that. You're going to be back in the scenario where you're just basically repeating the kinds of things the Russians had done that everybody had condemned the Russians for. You're going to be sending tanks, sorties out and helicopters to bomb villages in the north because you've been told that these were Taliban strongholds or they were they were ammunition or, or material dumps or whatever. And you're going to get it wrong and you're going to kill people who weren't in the Taliban. And you are going to just become a reincarnation of the problem that uh, you had, which stopped you going to the Olympics in 1976. So that wasn't a, a very pleasing prospect. But yeah, they essentially, I don't suppose they would have explicitly said this, but they essentially existed they, they they developed a policy, or the policy was, of coexistence. There was never a real attempt to extirpate them. It was always clear it was only going to be a matter of time. And the Taliban went to ground. And they just stayed there, and they built. And then as soon as it looked like it was going to go the other way, they came back. And the public started to fold all over the place, as did parts of the military and parts of the police. Because, well, the Taliban are going to stick around, and the Americans aren't. So really all America has done is induce a lot of people to act in a way, which means they're probably now going to be slaughtered by the Taliban when this is over. Because the Taliban will do what the Americans weren't willing to do and destroy any potentially corrosive remnant. The Taliban are not going to be squeamish. They're going to kill exactly as many... Well, I say exactly as many need to be killed. Probably the Taliban will work on the principle that, you know, if, if we kill a few extra, what the harm you... I, Maybe we're maybe listen. Maybe we're being unfair about the Taliban. Maybe they will be judicious and careful and merciful. But yes, I'm reminded, I think, as you are, that the famous quote from the bishop outside of the outside of the uh, Cathar castle in, during the Albigensian Crusade, where somebody said to him, "Well, we're worried if we take the castle, there may be other, there may be Catholics inside." And the bishop famously responded, "Kill them all. God will know His own." And then I suppose the question is. If you're not willing to do what's needed to actually stabilize the country and get it to a state where you can build something and then leave, which again is the mass slaughter of people, because that's what you would have needed to do to get rid of them. Taking Clausewitz's point, you don't start that war because you're not willing to finish it. And not being, shall we say, smart here or deliberately obtuse for effect, but can you remember what the, pr the actual stated objective was when they went into Afghanistan? Was it simply, was it to find bin Laden? Yeah, so they, they launched attacks against Al-Qaeda 
um, and the Taliban in Afghanistan and said, you know, it was a fight against that and to deny, to dismantle Al-Qaeda and to remove the Taliban from power and to find bin Laden. And it, it always kind of just got tacked on to everything else. I think the justification, shall we say, at the legal level was that Afghanistan had essentially become a haven for international terrorism. It was it had become this kind of landlocked aircraft carrier from which terror groups could launch attacks around the world. You couldn't have a sovereign state that was operating under those circumstances. But that's exactly what we will have now. But the problem is this time, well, it's hard to imagine that anybody's going to take seriously the threat that the Americans will go back. And as somebody pointed out, well, if you've got people who think that we're going to be able to solve this with airstrikes and drones, well, then... Would this, as I said, this is a landlocked country, and you're going to require the permission of either Pakistan or Iran to use their airspace to go into Afghanistan, and the likelihood of that happening, well, I mean, what was what was really interesting about this is on paper the Afghan security forces they're put at about three hundred thousand. Now, some of that estimates vary, but let's say fifty to sixty thousand of it ghost soldiers and ghost security personnel. They're, they're basically people who've been put on the books so that they can claim money from the state. Because it turns out, Michael, if you pump trillions of dollars into an artificial government, the opportunities to make money are endless. Oh, I'd say the fortunes were made. So they, let's say 240 to 300,000 people, that's between the Afghan army uh, and the, um, sorry, the Afghan military and the police. The Taliban up to the end of last year, it was estimated that the Taliban could put about 10,000 people into a battle. And of that, about two or 3,000 would be veterans. That is not the projection that's being given for the Taliban anymore. Now there's talk of you know, 60,000, 120,000 fighters. More than that. Yeah. And this is the thing, as the Taliban moves, and as it looks like it's going to win, people are going to switch to it, because this is effectively a civil war. Except one side is propped up by someone who's now decided they're not going to prop them up any longer. Which does give a sense of inevitability to the entire thing. Yes. And then you have the Biden administration saying that the Afghan army ha- or military has all of the advantages that they have. The air force, they have everything like that. And they've used that air force. The problem is, is in using that air force, as you would expect, Michael, they've killed a number of civilians. And now the Taliban are using that as a recruitment tool. Yeah. So that's the great thing about a civil war. Yeah, yeah. Actually, you, can, you can't beat a civil war. So yeah, on the uh, 20th anniversary, as we move towards the 20th anniversary of September the 11th, it looks like the Taliban are going to be in uh, control of the country by that point. Now, this is a war. Things could happen. The situation, Michael, as they say, could be fluid. But even if they beat them back and they locked them down into the southern states, uh, into the southern counties, and they locked them into the mountains... They're not going to get rid of them. And eventually, something is going to happen and the Taliban are going to come back. The Taliban will come back, or, or shall we say, until the idea of the Taliban doesn't work anymore, which may come. I mean, these things come and go, fashions come and go, ideologies flare up, and then lose their salt and their savour for people. And that may happen to the Taliban. BBC did a a review of a piece on how the Taliban are taking land so quickly. And they had a a former British Army uh, brigadier and a senior fellow at the Institute of Strategic Studies. And he said his, his review of what the Taliban have done was, if you were to write a campaign plan 
to retake Afghanistan, I would be hard-pressed to come up with anything better than what they've done. Well, I suppose they've had a long time to plan this. And it was actually, his, his analysis was quite interesting, that the Taliban attacks began away from their strongholds, that they didn't come from the direction anyone expected, that they started taking border crossing checkpoints, that they've started killing uh, human rights activists, journalists, but also key government officials to cause the government to break down. And they're just, um, they're just kicking the shit out of the government. So they, they started with a plan of, I suppose, planned chaos to engender planned chaos and undermine the sense of security and then to create the most, the biggest problems they could for transport and internal communications. And then, oh, it sounds like a good plan. As you say, these things are fluid. Actually, in the time when we were discussing what we would talk about and we started recording this podcast, the Taliban took two other cities including the second largest city in the country. Like, they are moving at incredible speed. Maybe they'll all catch COVID. Maybe they'll get tired. Like, this seems like a lot of work. A lot of work. So, from that to our own little war, the climate war, Michael. Do we have to? So, the climate budgets and all of that stuff, and Michal Martin has come out and said there will be more done on this, and... There's talk about why, you know, EU plans on it and red lines for humanity and all of that sort of stuff. That's all going to be covered and that's being covered at an incredible extent by most of the media. So we're not going to touch on it because why bother? However, there was one thing that I thought was interesting. The government announced that for the rest of its life, there will be an annual increase in carbon taxes. That's a bad thing, Michael. And it's a bad thing for this very simple reason. Carbon taxes just... Even ignoring my general dislike of raising taxes for, you know, no reason, are taxes that will be passed on to consumers. And ultimately, because poor people, Michael, have less money, taxes that are immediately passed on to consumers at an equal rate across all consumers hurt poor people more. So carbon taxation is a regressive tax in this country. It is, and we know it is, because even that old conservative stalwart, Michael, the ERSI, yes, have come out and said that, well, actually, these are regressive taxes. I wonder, Gary, if it is a question, not so much of the general principle of carbon taxes, but rather the way that they're doing it. I, I think it's the way that they're doing carbon tax here rather than the idea of carbon tax itself. There was a report Sam Bowman was tweeting and brooding around, which was making the argument that the kind of carbon taxes that they were looking at in Britain would actually be progressive. The ERSI has also done some work on this, I remember from a couple of years ago, and their general take was, they're regressive. But if you give carbon tax revenues back to those households, then they become progressive. Which is to say, take it from them and then give it back to them. And the problem, and I mean, you could set it up so that you give them more than they take. Problem with it is this, Michael. Carbon taxes are ultimately not designed as revenue-raising tools. They're widely used as revenue-raising tools, but that's not actually what they're designed to do. What they're designed to do is to make it more and more economically painful for you to purchase goods which are heavily, uh, which have a heavy carbon burden. They are designed to change your purchasing patterns by pushing you towards alternatives, which the taxes will make uh, relatively cheaper. Yeah, I think in a sense you should think of a carbon tax. Uh, in the same way as we think of duty on, say, cigarettes, it's a, it's a, it's using the tax system to modify behaviour 
carbon tax is essentially it's a sin tax. The only problem with that is when we talk about how to make that a progressive tax is no one has ever explained to me how you square that circle of it has to be more expensive in order to change purchase priorities and impact on your buying decisions, but will also make sure it doesn't hit the poorest hardest. How do you do that? Because if you don't hit the, if you don't increase the cost of things, well, then you don't have any impact on buying patterns. And if ultimately you're just giving people back the money anyway, what is it that you'll get a, a grant a year of a certain amount and then you may pay less in carbon tax? One way you don't do it, I suppose, rather than answer your actual question is, is by putting carbon tax uh, on air travel and then exempting private airplanes. Oh, that would be a silly thing if someone had done that, Michael. Wouldn't that be a silly thing? Even if they did it at a European level. So when did we do that? We did that this year. That's the, this current. That's the current. That's current policy. Um, the fact is, we are facing into form of carbon taxes. There are going to be carbon taxes all over the place, Gary. That won't necessarily look like carbon taxes. Carbon tax ultimately is just a shorthand for. A tax designed to modify behaviour in order to reduce emissions. Do you know what uh, what particular item, Michael, has exceedingly high uh, carbon tax put onto it? Just because of the nature of it? Cow. Fuel. Well, yes, I, I will. Yes, fuel. Because they are mostly hydrocarbons. Yeah, so fuel of the kind that you would use to, let's say, warm your house during winter. That would immediately be made more expensive by these annual increases in... Carbon tax. And I don't know, Michael, if you've ever seen the figures for how many elderly people in this country struggle to afford to heat their homes during winter. But it might shock you, Michael, to know that that is a concern. Yeah, but you're behind the curve. You're behind the curve. Now, we know that if you're building a new house these days, all the new houses, they're, they're heated with electricity and with uh, passive active heat transfer pumps and something you stick in the... It's all... It's all wonderful anyway. And you've tripled glazing and it's all fine. So you're worried about the old people who are living in houses with uh, coal fires and things like that. Yes? Well, don't worry. We're going to retrofit all of those houses. Hasn't the state said it's not going to pay for that? Ah, the state says things, Gary. You don't want to believe it. But it, in in a report, they said that it was going to cost, uh, what, what the plan is going to cost, around $15 billion. Well, somebody said 15 billion, somebody else came out and had a paroxysm of laughter and said, oh, I'm sorry, you're talking more like 30 billion, but we'll say 15 billion. Retrofitting is very time consuming and very expensive. Are you saying the old people aren't worth the retrofitting, Gary? I'm saying, Michael, that I have, I have heard mention of that plan, Michael, and the timeline on which it will be done. And I remember sitting down, and this was in relation to boilers trying to work out how many people in the country could actually retrofit a boiler and how many people we'd need to be able to do that job to hit those targets. I don't think there are enough people in that trade in this country or who could be quickly trained to move into that uh, sector to actually physically allow the retrofitting to take space in the time required. And I would suspect, Michael, that somewhere in a department, someone worked out how much it would cost, and a reasonable amount of money to spend per year, and then put the estimate based on that, as opposed to saying, do we physically have enough people to do this? Now, it's funny you should say that, because in fact, that is what the government 
at least some voices in the government have been saying. Uh, they've been couching it also in, in a broader context where they said, we can't do all this retrofitting and build tens of thousands of houses for the people that haven't got the houses. Oh, yeah, because of the, the homeless crisis and the yeah, and the problems with rent that rent caps have caused. And do you remember, I, I think, I, I think months ago, Michael, months and months ago before the rent caps came in, we were talking about it and how it might drive private landlords out of the market and actually reduce the amount of available rental stock. Well, we were wrong. Yes, well, I'm, you know, it's one of those things where I'm actually very happy to have been wrong because that would have been absolutely awful to happen. Now, while some people might say it looks like private rent, private landlords are getting out of the rental market. That's not actually what's happening. What's happening is that greedy landlords are cashing in on a housing boom and selling their houses to make money. As a consequence, yes, they are technically no longer in the rental market. But that's not because of the, it's nothing to do with their government regulations and it's nothing to do with their concerns about tenancy and tenancy, increased tenancy rights. And it's nothing to do with the costs. No, Gary, it's all about them being greedy and wanting to sell their houses when the prices of houses have gone up so far. So we want to be clear about that. It was nothing to do with the new regulations. Absolutely, it was, it was purely greed. They looked at how much they could make by selling the property versus how much they could take in and rent and realised that it just made fiscal sense to do the first. Unkind people might say, Michael, that shouldn't it have been obvious that those two things were linked? And if rental caps hadn't been there and they could have brought up the rental price, some people would have been priced out, but there would have at least been some amount of rental capacity, which is now just absolutely being reduced over the country. And they might point to, let's say, the recent uh, quarterly report from daft.ie saying that, um, what was it? Record low number of properties available for rent. Sky high rents rocketing upwards because of that. Again, Gary, you're making a fundamental error. Uh, I don't like to be so disagreeable in this particular episode. But anyway, you're making a connection between the supply and the price. And we have been assured by several people who are experts in the housing area, supply of housing and housing economics, that the notion that the cost of housing or the cost of rent is in some sense connected to the supply and the demand. That's just nonsense. That's voodoo economics. So you don't, you want, you don't want to think that. You, this notion that just because you have a large number of people chasing a small number of rental accommodation in Dublin, for example, that that would lead to the price of rents going up. That's kind of old-fashioned thinking. So you, you want to get, get that out of your head because the people are going to be running the provision of housing in this country uh, for the next number of years. Don't believe that nonsense. So you want to get rid of that because that's that. Will, if you think like that, nothing will make sense to you. Now, I would make the point that I think it was Tom Parlin, who was the spokesperson for the men who built houses in Ireland, said that this is not true, that they, they don't have enough people. They have, he said, plenty of people available to build houses and to do retrofitting and all sorts of yokes. There are plenty of skilled people around. But that there are other problems which are creating problems for people who want to build houses. 
and he seemed to be implying that some of these were to do with planning issues and regulation and government related stuff. So you kind of have to be skeptical because the government has said it was committed to people getting houses. So it would be very hard to square that with the idea that actions of the government were in some way inhibiting the provision of housing because that wouldn't make sense. So I think that's Tom Parlin being a little bit talking carbon tax. EVs. I know. Have you noticed that? Sorry, I don't know. If, you're aware of this. EV. People don't say electric cars anymore or hybrids. It's EV. I was reading an article, a paper on this, and it's EV, EV. What the hell is EV? It took me rather longer than it should have done to say the electric vehicle. But electric vehicle is not the answer, Gary. Is it because of all that slave labor? Uh, no, I don't think we really care about the slave labor. Are the working children to death in the cobalt mines? No, I, I think there are, there, are, there are lots of issues. But... <laughs> The um, there was a there was a report done which for the Center for Environmental and Research Earth Sciences and one of the things I may have mentioned this before but I I like it I just like it as a, as a statistic it said that replacing fifty million of the world's estimated one point three billion cars with electric vehicles would require more than doubling the world's annual production of cobalt neodymium and lithium and using more than half the world's current annual copper production. I mean, the exact numbers are interesting, but we knew that. We knew that was the case. Maybe not the exact numbers, but it was pretty obvious that that was going to be an issue. Green energy technologies, according to these people, require tenfold increase in the mineral extraction compared to fossil fuel electricity. But the bigger point to me, okay, leaving aside the fact that we'd have to actually just dig up the world if we were going to start using electric vehicles. And we're allowed that we haven't worked out how to use, how to get green hydrogen yet. We're still stuck on blue hydrogen or gray hydrogen. Don't ask. Allowing that, we still have to get the electricity, Gary, to put into these electric vehicles. And where is that electricity going to come from? French nuclear plants? Well, you know, I have the French can't just cover the whole of France with nuclear plants, but which seems to be the answer to the world world's problems, at least the world in this part of the world. Everybody is going to go and say, well, we can always get electricity from the French. There are a shocking amount of European problems to which the expected answer at a policy level is French nuclear power plants. And if that ever fails on us, Michael... There's going to be many issues. <laughs> we are already running out. We are already running out of electricity here. We are at a point. Somebody made the point, and it's not a. It's 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 not actually without foundation that we have maybe an excessive fondness in this country for data centers, and for us to go involve to go forward with the kind of carbon reduction, uh, green positive energy plans that we have. And at the same time, we keep opening energy centres. doesn't seem really to be a coherent policy. Or data centres. It's going to dovetail nicely with the carbon taxes on fuel, because when the electricity of the elderly fails, and with it, you know, a lot of their heating, uh, they won't be able to afford fuel to burn. Like solid fuels, Michael. And then they'll die, and that will dramatically reduce our carbon footprint. You know, reduce, reuse, recycle, Michael. And we could probably bring them somewhere into a mangrove swamp, which would trap them. Because, you see, there is a problem with burying people. It's not carbon neutral, but listen. So, I mean, that's a problem for another day. I love that we've managed to introduce multiple policies 
<laughs> the ultimate end question is, what about the elderly who might freeze to death? How does this impact them? I just feel, as a country, we thought we'd move by that in about 1960. Well, there was a hope. Uh, we saw that there were quite significant numbers, and it's not fun for them, of elderly people who, who actually died of hypothermia in Romania. If, uh, I remember a few years ago, and there was a particularly harsh winter there. And there was a lot of discussion about fuel poverty amongst the elderly across Europe. And, of course, you we were very happy because well, that that was an issue which had been consistently dealt with here because we were giving people free 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 bales of brickets and things like that. Of course, we don't have bales of brickets. Well, I was going to say we don't have bales of brickets anymore. We do. We just don't have them uh, when they're made in Ireland so much. That, well, they're being phased out. So they, they are gradually diminishing. But we have located an alternative source, so we're bringing in German bales of brickets from the lignite mines, the great lignite mines of North Germany, which are all basically carb net carbon neutral, I'm sure. I mean, let's face it, lignite, you couldn't get cleaner fuel than that. You know, it's bad when I and the ERSI have agreed on something. Yeah, it's one of those things that you want to get your Bible out and check. Is there something about this in the Book of Revelations? I believe it was the fifth seal. It sounds like one of those things that when Gary and the ERSI agree on something, look on, look and look to the horizon and if you see the you see the second not we'll, what will the purple horse of the apocalypse coming then you know the times the time the end times are at hand then the rsi kind of desperately go now here's how we could make it work what we need is just cash grants to people and you sort of go but that that that's kind of a perpetual motion machine isn't it though we need to, them to have less money to spend on things but we're going to give them more money on the hope that they then spend it on less expensive things anyway. Also, where, is, where are we going to get the cash? Well, we're going to get it from rich people. You know, I have a feeling the rich people are going to go somewhere else if we start doing that too much. Well, you see, the problem I think they'll run into quite quickly is because if you're rich, you can afford, you know, Michael, very carbon-efficient goods. And those are somewhat of a status symbol. So you may actually raise less money. Initially, you'll raise a lot of money from the rich. But as they invest more and more in carbon-neutral products, you're going to get less and less big-ticket items from them. And that's going to hurt. Maybe. Yeah. You know the way uh, it used to be that if people wanted to go hiking in the Himalayas, that some of the less athletic people would get sedan chairs and get half a dozen sturdy Sherpas just to carry them around. That was one of the major benefits of Empire. I'm just thinking, since we're now talking about we should have electric scooters and, and bikes and stuff, maybe the great status symbol for the future will not be the very, very large Mercedes running on electricity or pious expectations, but rather it will be some kind of very elaborate large rickshaw being dragged around Dublin by bunches of Sherpas they're going to import Sherpas from Nepal to pull rich people around the city in a completely carbon-neutral kind of a way. And people will point at them and say, look, look at that rich man doing what he's... He's helping save the planet. He's a wonderful man. Because he could be driving a car, but he's not. He's got six Sherpas from Nepal and a super-duper rickshaw. I like to imagine part of the rickshaw is still made out of lithium. 
Just so the children still have to die in slave conditions? You wouldn't want the children not to have something to do. It's, I kind of put it like blood diamonds, where people are like, blood diamonds are terrible. Counterpoint. Blood diamonds show your commitment to someone in a way a regular diamond can't. I've always been of the position that if I was ever having to give somebody a diamond ring, I would buy one of your non-blood diamond rings and tell her it was a blood diamond, you know, for the sake of it. I thought you were going to say that you were going to buy the non-blood diamond ring and then just handle the blood aspect yourself. (laughs) No, I'm fundamentally a man of peace. No, I, I am fundamentally a man of peace, Gary. And also, I think that's—I assume that's like manufacturing diamonds in lab conditions. They're technically perfect, but they're just not the same. If you kill someone with a blood diamond, it's not the same as a warlord wiping out a region because their quota was down. It's just different. It doesn't have the authenticity that you're going to want. I'm intrigued the, the idea that warlords have quotas. Well, I mean, if you've got like a—if you've got like a slave village that is involved in the diamond trade, obviously you're going to set them a quota. They have to tie it to well, the quota. Of diamonds, yes. But the way you articulated it sounded rather like the warlords had a quota of people they had to kill every month. And I just, I was wondering, was there a super duper, like a high a high king warlord that they would report back to? And he'd say, well, rather disappointing results in the southwest this week. You know, I mean, you're just not killing enough people. And Well, I mean, you've got to keep those people in line as well. So maybe you've got a quota of a couple of them you kill. It depends how old the children have to be before you can put them into the mine. Because you're going to need to figure out what the sustainable rate of population growth is in order to keep the village producing but constantly in slavery. Because if you you kill too many, population will decline and output will suffer. So I like to think that African warlords involved in this are really just very, very, very aggressive statisticians. You like to think that, do you? Okay. I like to think that somebody, as we speak, is thinking, that's an idea for my masters. I could develop an algorithm to find out what is the, you know, like, the, you, can, you can work out what is the perfect age to buy a second-hand car. What is the perfect age to send a child down a, a lithium mine? I look forward to reading it in the Harvard Business Review. Yeah, proper scientifically researched and informative economics, the kind of economics that makes a difference in the world. Well, I think on that uplifting story of uh, slavery, death and statistics, uh, we will end it for today and we will be back on Sunday. Okay. Sounds like fun. Bye-bye. All the best.